Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I am fresh back from an adventure. I I was getting that from you, Jennifer. You've got that sort of rosy glow of somebody who has been looking at monuments and basking in uh, the glory of our nation. That's right. I was just in our nation's capital in a hotel ballroom addressing school superintendents. And what is more glorious than that? Tell me about it. So I know you get invited to do these things all the time, but this was new to me. And I think it tells you just how dire the situation <laughs> is in Edgeland that a uh, professional association of superintendents would think I would make a good keynote. <laughs> uh, some Somebody got the wrong email address there. No, you're well, perfect. You're exactly what they need to hear. They they hear from people like me all the time. It's about time they got a, a straight shooter from the Midwest. Well, you will be happy to know that I put in a plug for education history. I encourage them to also have an education historian on speed dial. And I said- <laughs> and You gave and everybody even, my cell phone. Well, and I even had on a slide, I had, here are the questions that you need to ask said education historian. Has this terrible thing that we're living through ever happened before? And question two, how did it end? <laughs> It's so good. It reminds me of a consulting service that Ethan Hutt and I, uh, a friend of the show, Ethan Hutt, and I continue to um, to imagine that we'll start, which is called It's Not Gonna Work. And what you do is you tell us about what you're about to shell district dollars out for, you know, the new PD or the, you know, one-to-one program, whatever it is, and we will compile enough history for you that persuades you that it isn't going to work. And that's it. And we just save you. Well, we our, our fee is 10% of whatever we save you. I'm sure that in the annals of education history, somebody had that idea before and <laughs> wait for it. It didn't work. <laughs> so even though I told you about my shout out to education historians sort of in jest, I really did mean it in a serious way in my keynote address. Do you like how I said that? <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. And in some ways it perfectly encapsulates what we're going to be talking about on this episode. We're talking about a recent history that I really didn't know all that much about. And that is a grassroots effort by students and parents and community members to really push back against the school to prison pipeline. And then the second question, well, how did it end? Reflects, I think this real moment of of uncertainty that we're in right now, right? That for many different reasons, we're hearing that horrible word hardening mm. being used again. We're hearing about school violence being bandied about in kind of an hysterical way. And you, even as this episode celebrates progress, you feel kind of darkening clouds on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Dark clouds may be on the horizon, but I think this is a really important story to tell because it can be easy to think that um, victories like the you know pushback against racially disparate discipline uh, results and um, you know racialized disciplinary policies in school that that wins like that 
come from on high, right? That some enlightened philosopher king decided to, you know, by fiat, mandate the right thing. And that's what, that's what did the trick. And instead, you know, what we see is that change in a positive direction that makes people's lives better is the result of them organizing themselves and demanding something better. So what you're saying is that change doesn't come from the keynote in a <laughs> keynote hotel speaker bar. is not the right person. Yeah, yeah. Do, ignore the keynote speaker. Now to the main event. Our special guests are Mark Warren and Jonathan Stith. Mark is a professor of public policy and public affairs at UMass Boston and the author of a new book called Willful Defiance, The Movement to Dismantle the School-to-Prison Pipeline. And Jonathan Stith is the national director of the Alliance for Educational Justice. And as I mentioned in our introduction, the story that Mark chronicles and Jonathan is deeply immersed in is a story about students, parents, and community groups demanding change and actually winning. It starts in rural Mississippi and spreads across the country, through the South, through small towns, suburbs, and big cities. And along the way, they become a powerful movement, successfully challenging zero-tolerance school discipline and school policing practices. I'll pause here so that you can order a copy of the book, because it really is that inspiring. Okay, just a little more context. Mark specializes in something called community-engaged research. That's where parents, young people, and community organizers play a central role in shaping and conducting research, then helping come up with community-based solutions to problems they care about. A novel idea, huh? And one of the problems that Mark kept hearing about was something called the school-to-prison pipeline. I was starting to hear from them about our schools feel like jails, hearing more about suspensions and expulsions and referrals to juvenile justice. You know, I've been kind of hearing it, but hadn't really particularly focused on it. The first people to raise this issue were not really academics like myself. It wasn't the civil rights advocacy community in Washington. It was really started to be raised in really the mid to late 90s when the system was really starting to be put into place or moving into that level of critical mass of being in place. Mark also had a personal connection to the issue. He's married to a Black British woman and has two biracial daughters. And when his older daughter entered middle school, her entire schooling experience suddenly seemed to split along racial and disciplinary lines. The white students who tended to be middle class were treated in one way and Black students who tended more to be working class, the school was starting to come on, down on them for very minor behavioral issues that we thought were normal teenage behaviors. And it, it just became a very harsh environment. And students were being sometimes suspended, but often just put in detention rooms and, you know, just being repressed. And a, a school system that was supposed to be very progressive and diverse started to seem like an apartheid system to us. His daughter stopped wanting to go to school. And when Mark and his wife spoke up about what they saw as racist school discipline practices, the school district came down hard on them. 
she started to see her Black friends become really alienated from school, and she became very alienated from school. And so a child who had loved school now was, you know, caught in the middle of the school-to-prison pipeline. It was an issue that was in our own extended family. And then as I shared in the book, when my wife and I started to at first complain and then talk more and more with people about it and talk about this as racism, the school administrators came down hard on us and we were actually investigated. They claimed that we didn't live in the, in the city and they sent investigators to our house at something like six in the morning and demanded that we produce our children in bed. So that was you know, the main incident that happened. But in general, we were ostracized from the school community. We were very involved and particularly my wife had been very involved supporting many of the teachers and education that was going on in the school and the library and in the classrooms. So before we go any further, we need to define some terms. You've no doubt heard of the school-to-prison pipeline, and I'm guessing that it conjures up a specific image for you. But what you may not quite comprehend is the vastness of its reach. We talk about suspensions and expulsions, which are, you know, widespread and also police arrests. People may not know that a quarter of a million children are referred to police officers in schools every year. Over 60,000 are arrested every year. Black students are three times as likely as white students to be referred and arrested in schools. It's a large phenomenon. In one study in Texas, over three quarters of black students have been suspended at least once in their secondary school year, many multiple times. Many studies show that if a student is suspended at a younger grade, they are more likely to not finish school. We don't like to use the term dropping out, but they're pushed out of school. They don't finish school and they're more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. If you are a black man in this country without a high school degree, your chances of ending up in prison at some point in your life are two thirds. So two thirds of all black men without a high school degree will be in prison at some point in their lives, one third at any one time. In other words, the school-to-prison pipeline is about more than just a set of wrong-headed policies and practices in need of reform. It's really part of this larger system of mass incarceration and what Michelle Alexander called the new Jim Crow. And as the U.S. government and state and local governments were ramping up three strikes and you're out, uh, zero tolerance in communities, stop and frisk and starting to arrest and incarcerate large numbers of Black men and Black people and people of color out of the community, this was being imposed in our schools at exactly the same time. And so it's really a deep-seated system that has transformed our educational system. You know, in the 1970s, there were only 100 police officers in the entire public education system of the United States. By 2015-16, there were 82,000 armed police officers in our schools. So this is a wholesale transformation. And those police officers are concentrated mainly in schools that are supposed to be serving low-income students of color. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. You said this was going to be a feel-good story. And isn't there another guest? It is, and there is. Jonathan Stith is the National Director of the Alliance for Educational Justice and the co-director of the National Campaign for Police-Free Schools. He says that one major accomplishment of the education justice movement has been naming the school-to-prison pipeline. For many years in my early part of organizing, young people were blamed. Black and brown young people were blamed for their own criminalization, for their own, you know, the poor conditions of the school they, they would put on them. And so just even the acknowledgement that there is this school to prison pipeline, that there is this 
sets of policies and practices that school districts and states are instituting in violence has been a huge victory and really kind of spreading the knowledge of the school to prison pipeline that I think in some ways that people now see it, can't unsee it, and it has moved them to action. I think that's one of the beautiful things around the education justice movement is that it is, in so many ways, struggles of a thousand blooms, right? There's so many groups that kind of come together, find themselves, and take action and are able to create some kind of change in their local school system. The movement that Jonathan has helped lead and that Mark chronicles dates back three decades when Get Tough measures like the Clinton crime bill helped usher in our current era of mass incarceration. The title of Mark's book refers to laws passed in state after state in the 90s, giving school districts the authority to punish kids for quote-unquote willful defiance. But Jonathan says the pushback against harsh discipline actually dates back much further. It starts in the civil rights era and basically just keeps going. As Ella Baker, who was seen as kind of the quintessential organizer of the civil rights movement and serves as a kind of beacon and kind of icon for youth organizers of, of my generation, right? she really talked about how young people are the hope of any movement in, the, in this generation. And I think that you know, the education justice movement and the work there has really demonstrated that not only the, what young people have won, but those who young who love young people have won. And so I think, you know, when we think about this country and its public institutions and being able to, to transform them, you can see like the impact or kind of the impact of kind of regular grassroots groups really sh- shifting and, and pushing back against these policies that we say, you know, was part of a set of reaction to wins around segregation in the 60s and 70s. And so you see then grassroots groups continuing to fight for public education, early wins like uh, coming out of Los Angeles around ending citations, early stuff around really curtailing suspensions. In fact, the creation of the organization that I'm currently the national director of, the Alliance for Educational Justice, comes out of this moment with the election of Obama. Those policies are a reflection of years of organizing on the ground grassroots groups many of their solutions, many of the things that they had already won in their local school districts and states then becoming federal policy and really shaping and really lifting up even the concept, winning the war of ideas around that there actually is this school, the prison pipeline. So Jack, you heard Jonathan make a reference just now to how this is actually an old story, right? Big surprise for this show that <laughs> even though we're focused on on policy changes that were implemented in the Clinton era and afterwards, this goes back to the era post Brown v. Board. And I have a sneaking suspicion that you've actually written about this. Am I correct? <laughs> Yes, you are correct, Jennifer. Thank you for the setup there. Well, I would like you to tell us about it. And I know this is going to be tough for you because you're going to want to tell us a great deal. In grisly detail. The the work that I did looked at the city of Los Angeles and sort of the broader region in Southern California. And one of the things that I wanted to understand was, you know, to what extent did people actually experience racially desegregated schools and then react to that experience? And to what extent were their actions, and the action that I was particularly interested in was white flight, to what extent did actions like that result from something other than direct personal experience, right? Were they reacting to, let's say, broader narratives in the culture, in the news media, elsewhere? Do you want me to guess? Yeah. Yes, Jennifer, I'd like you to guess. Yeah. 
Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they were not responding to their direct experience. They were, in fact, responding to a larger media narrative. Am yes, I right? Yes, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. A narrative that was driven by, you know, not surprisingly, racialized sensationalism. So if you look back at newspaper op-eds, at radio show transcripts, at headlines of articles in the LA Times or other newspapers, what you see is students of color, young people of color, and communities of color being portrayed as uneducated, as disinterested in participating in the broader culture, and as downright violent and dangerous. And this becomes particularly true in the LA area after the Watts riots. Um, you know, just to, to draw on some of the stuff that I found in my work, you know, we've got people like, you know, a Southgate resident, uh, which is adjacent to Watts, saying, you know, what would have happened if these people had won out, right, that they were pushing for racially integrated schools. At the time, Southgate High was something like 97% white, um, and the high school in Watts was something like 99% black. Um, so he was asking, you know, what would have been the outcome if the schools had been integrated? And his conclusion was, white students coerced into such a hostile outburst of hate and discrimination would have been beaten, raped, and killed. It cannot now be denied. These kinds of opinions weren't just being voiced by individual citizens. They were being voiced by influential leaders. So... Um, the chairman of a 17-member committee of businessmen that had been appointed by the L.A. Chamber of Commerce uh, after the Watts riots or the Watts rebellion uh, appointed to you know, map the future of the city uh, wrote in an op-ed in the L.A. Times that um, you know, everybody was going to need to meet this challenge, quote, especially Negroes themselves, their deficiencies in education and attitude especially need correcting. Well, I feel like you went back to the annals and you just dug up the most outrageous quotes that you could find. And there are probably more of them, right? Yeah, well, just looking at headlines. Uh, you can go back and go through the LA Times and find headlines like, schools warned to prepare for racial strife on the front page. Um, in that story, uh, a school administrator said, it sounds terrible, but a school must have a riot policy. And so we can see, right, a kind of racial hysteria emerging that, again, is really not grounded in direct experience and which really takes off when people can point to instances of racialized violence or racialized rebellion, as we saw during the 60s, right? So in my work on LA, I was looking particularly at Watts, but, you know, we see this throughout the 1960s. And really that was capitalized on by whites who wanted to structure a narrative of dangerous people of color, particularly black people, particularly young black males who would threaten the safety of any white students who shared a space in school with them. Back to Mark Warren and Jonathan Stith, there was a moment that really supercharged the movement to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline. It was 2015, and a cell phone video shot by a student in Columbia, South Carolina, went viral. Our most transformative moment was the assault at Spring Valley. 
and the actions of Nia Kenny, 16-year-old high school student, Black girl, and her willingness to intervene in an incident of police brutality that was happening in her school by then the SRO officer Fields, where he put Shakara, another student, in a chokehold and flung her across the room for allegedly, at the time, not willing to put up her cell phone, right? And so I think that kind of little stance had a huge impact. I know it sparked something in the consciousness of young folk in the Alliance. And we saw young people all over the country actually start to self-organize in defense of Naya and Shakara. One of their most beautiful moments is that they collected hundreds of love letters from students all across the country telling Shakara that she was going to be all right, that there was a community fighting for her and that. And then to Naya telling Naya that she did the right thing because the school community had shunned her turned it back and something. She didn't even end up graduating from Spring Valley. She had to leave the school. And so there was such a beautiful way, again, where understanding kind of the things that young people are fighting for in their schools around kind of restorative justice, these ideas around really how do we help and hold and heal one another, really came to life in this kind of real tense political pressure, right? This is like state violence, like really raw in your face. And this is, and this is begins to be the response. Suddenly, student groups all across the country were demanding police-free schools and an end to zero-tolerance school discipline, and they were winning. Many of the groups start to build out campaigns to really challenge police presence in their own city. I think that's also been a beautiful thing. They like they saw this and understood it, its connection to them, its possibility in their own schools, or maybe it's it's already inevitability and a need to not only do this one in support of, but also change. And I think one of the most exciting sites of change has been Los Angeles in particular, kind of coming out of Ferguson. They In that kind of moment, they also, young people with the Labor Community Strategy Center organized a campaign around the federal 1033 program, discovering that school districts were receiving, and their school district's police department was receiving bazookas and armored trucks and all kinds of military-grade weapons and challenging them and making them send those weapons back. And they have the, the FedEx receipts to show for it. Key to the success of these student and parent activists was changing the minds of teachers and their unions. Mark says that over a period of years and under pressure of organizing, teachers' unions, especially the national organizations, began to pivot. Both national teachers unions were in favor of zero tolerance, which is that, you know, you suspend and expel students for very minor behavioral infractions. And so were local unions. And unfortunately, many of these unions initially opposed efforts by parents and young people to change suspension and expulsion policies through the organizing that has been going on and intentional efforts to engage teachers on many levels by grassroots organizing and advocacy and academics. You know, the National Teachers Unions did both change their positions on exclusionary discipline. Actually, uh, AFT issued an apology, but the local unions still often remain opposed. And then at the same time, though, there are these threats to teachers unions by privatizers you know, many teachers and many unions started to realize that they were going to lose on their own and that they had shared interest with Black communities organizing for change. And by the way, this is a, there's a long history of this. This is just a, a current iteration. And I, I think we, we continue to try to emphasize that, right? It's not just, oh, they happen to be, you know, opposing these demands. Unfortunately, many teachers unions opposed the demands of, of Black community in the 60s. 
So you have young people and parents pushing for change, you have teachers and their unions in desperate need of new allies, and don't forget about the explosion of activism by teachers themselves, especially young teachers just entering the profession. Then the third thing that I think has really happened over the last three or four years is an explosion of teacher activism that isn't always centered in the union. And it's younger teachers, many teachers of color, but also younger white teachers who are entering education with eyes more open to what's going on. And they're being put into classrooms and seeing this kind of disciplined and controlled and punishing environment. And this is not why we wanted to become educators. And I think this is really important because you know, we need to change policies, but we also need people on the ground who are prepared to implement and move in a new direction because you can stop doing out-of-school suspensions, but you can then say, oh, well, we'll just sort of push these children out into the hall or we're going to remove police from schools. They're not going to be regularly stationed there, but we're going to call them, bring them back in for minor behavior. So we have to have, we have to win over the hearts and minds of teachers So, Jack, thinking about the complicated relationship that teachers and white teachers in particular have had with the issue of school safety made me think of a particular conflict and at the risk of opening one of the biggest cans of worms in the history of this show, I'm just going to throw it out there, Ocean Hill, Brownsville, go. (laughs) There have been many dissertations written about that and a few books as well. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a great place to start to think about this because it's so illustrative of a divide between white teachers and communities of color that was really wide and problematic and that has closed a lot over time uh, in that UFT-led conflict, right, where Al Shanker really became a sort of local, uh, regional, and national figure. Um, white teachers were very much uh, in opposition to the community of color, particularly black families in Brooklyn, um, who were making the kinds of demands that today really don't seem that outrageous. And at the time, white teachers were very much opposed to. Um, And, you know, I think we can flash forward a little bit and see that the demand from teachers for more discipline in schools and for police to enter schools really was a product of that divide between white teachers and the the teaching profession in the United States has always been predominantly white. Um, Obvious exceptions, particularly, you know, in particular school districts at particular times, uh, but a predominantly white profession and uh, an increasingly non-white student body Um, So if you go back and you look at polls in the 1970s and 80s, teachers were very much in favor of more discipline in schools. And it was, again, it was a part of a broader narrative, right? The zeitgeist was our schools are are chaotic, are disorganized, there's no discipline. You know, go back and look at 80s movies like Lean on Me, where the the savior was uh, a principal named Joe Clark, who carried a baseball bat around um, and told people to call him Batman. Uh, so that, that changed, right? That teachers' views 
on discipline in school changed because the broader narrative changed, because educators themselves did a lot of learning and reflecting. And today, educators are, you know, by and large, opposed to anything that leads to racially disparate discipline in schools. Um, they're opposed to the idea that students would be criminalized for the kinds of infractions that occur in schools rather than treated as young people who learn through experience. And so I think there is a positive story to tell here about how change over time is possible and does happen, even when we're talking about something as complex as race. But as you note, right, that it, it's fragile and that Narratives can very much change and can shape the way that people understand themselves and their roles. And I wouldn't be surprised if what we end up seeing is some degree of backsliding here. I don't know about backlash, but definitely backsliding. Way back at the start of this episode, I mentioned that the experience of reading Willful Defiance inspired in me a tangled emotional response. Here I was learning about a protest movement that was bigger, more widespread, and more effective than I could have imagined. And yet, even as I was reading about success stories in Holmes County, Mississippi, and Dayton, Ohio, and suburban Virginia, I couldn't shake a feeling of dread. We're living through a moment of profound backlash, and backlash that is systematically being aimed at kids. When I asked Jonathan about this, he told me that the backlash today is partly in response to that protest movement, starting with the reaction of high schoolers after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. When he was elected, the first set of folks to respond were, in fact, high school students walking out by the thousands all over the country. I was personally connected to the young folks in Phoenix. There was something I think that we missed in terms of what was happening in the consciousness of high school students, what the administration saw. And quickly, if we think about like the arc of that administration, kind of the, the one winner of the, of the Trump administration was Betsy DeVos. She made it all four years, right? And I think that speaks to, again, the centrality of education and then what you saw with the dissipation of the Trump administration, those then forces quickly pivoting, turning local. And one of the first institutions they go after is schools, right? Now with this mystery CRT, which most of us at Education Justice Organizing are like, that never existed, right? That's, that's like the second demand of the school to prison pipeline movement is curriculum. Today, that movement to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline continues, but now the students are confronting a powerful conservative backlash. Just look at Virginia. Governor Youngkin used the victory of young people from tenants and workers around their removal of policing from Alexandria Public Schools as a litmus test and part of this campaign to win, right, and calling for more policing. And then there what has been kind of manufactured is now this kind of crisis in the classroom, right? And this kind of recriminalization of young people, particularly black and brown young people, as they've been in crisis fights and then this justification around policing. What the truth is in Alexandria is that the young people, one, their demand was mental health supports and services. The school, Alexandria school system has never provided one single more counselors than what they had at the beginning, but were quickly under the pressure of white parents calling for replacement of police back in schools. They yield to that in spite of the efforts of black and brown students who, who are the clear majority of the school district and had the clear majority in the room. 
we're clear that these things are connected. They are connected to this kind of now this fusion of this right wing strategy that is finding its way, retrying to reorganize itself. And it is this from this policing of bodies, right? Mind, body, and spirit, right? And like these ways of like you can't learn, you're heavily policed. And you know, next thing they'll they'll be trying to reprivatize schools in a second. You may have heard pundits and experts calling on schools to use the opportunity of the pandemic to rethink every aspect of education. Well, when it comes to the systems of discipline, punishment, and criminalization, that has not happened. Actually, I think one of the things that we realize is in some ways just how deep-seated the system of discipline, punish, and criminalization actually is in our schools. I mean, we knew it before, you know, as students come back in, schools have doubled down on it and reinforced those systems. And I think that it's partly our young people, many of us, all of us really, but our young people have really, you know, suffered through a lot of trauma over the last couple of years. And they've been out of school and they've lost family members or extended family members. And, you know, they're coming back into schools. This was an opportunity to try to transform in a different kind of way, in ways that actually we know work, developing kind of restorative practices in a very holistic sense, right? It's not just about, oh, how do we correct student misbehavior? It's about how do we really change the way that adults respond and connect and treat our students in school? And how does the whole school community become one of healing? Because teachers have also gone through some trauma too, right? And there was this kind of opening up with the mass protests. In some ways, I think an authentic awakening. And then again, the reaction to that is not, wow, let's ride that and let's let's really see our young people who have been out on the street actually develop, you know, performing le- civic leadership uh, as leaders in our school community and instead seeing them as a threat. In fact, one legacy of moving school online during the pandemic is that schools figured out whole new ways to track and monitor students virtually. New forms of surveillance that have used Zoom or other kinds of methods to surveil or artificial intelligence, which is coming up with algorithms to so-called predict student crime, which again ends up labeling you know, and criminalizing our black and brown young people. Now to the big question, what happens next? Mark was wrapping up the conclusion to willful defiance as mass protests were sweeping the country in 2020, and his words now feel really prophetic. We know that mass protests spark a response and catalyze change. Fast forward to today, and Mark says he's still hopeful, but that our current moment is complex. And that's because the backlash we're now living through, well, it isn't just coming from the right. The people who implemented and built the school-to-prison pipeline were not all conservative Republican right-wingers at all. This system was built in our big urban areas that generally had so-called liberal democratic regimes. And so we have to understand that, the complexity of this. Right now, yes, we are facing a pushback that is centered in the right wing. But I think where when we're really talking about transformation, we have to transform the way that public education operates, even in pl- in places like Boston, where I live, or Washington, D.C., where Jonathan is. And so I think we're entering into a contentious period. I think that there will continue to be gains. You know, I think the police free, you know, it's finally on the table. Jonathan was talking about 2015. Spring Valley, I think, was the turning point for the movement. But most Americans had no idea <laughs> that there even was something called police free schools movement. And so that is now on the table. 
just as you know, the whole issue of the school to prison pipeline in 2008, when Jonathan and folks first started to raise this, they, they were told, "You're crazy. What are you talking about? There's no such thing as a school to prison pipeline." You know, so I think now these, these issues are on the table. They're not going away. The movement is not going away. And so I expect a kind of contentious period over a few years with some important gains, and it's, it'll be a little bit hard to predict where, where the whole thing is going. As for Jonathan, he is far and away the most hopeful person we've had on this show in some time, maybe ever. He says that through the course of his organizing work with students, he's seen them be transformed into a new kind of citizen, something that should leave you feeling just a little more hopeful, too. That is one of the beauties that I have been able to witness being able to organize with Black and Brown students at the high school age, at the site of struggle of schools, if we understand the place of schools and its connection to citizenship, become this really innovative lab of kind of resistance that is creating a new type of citizen in this country, particularly made up uh, centered around black and brown students that I think is going to have a really powerful effect well beyond what we're thinking about and seeing right now. And, I, and I, when I think when we look back, we'll look back at the struggles around a school to prison pipeline that actually fundamentally changed how we relate to, the, to each other and, and, and ushered in a kind of a new America, if you will. A big thanks to our special guests, Jonathan Stith and Mark Warren. Definitely check out Mark's inspiring new book, Willful Defiance, The Movement to Dismantle the School-to-Prison Pipeline. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss how, quote-unquote, race science seems to be slithering back into the public education conversation. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. The same states that are banning abortion are also on a school privatization tear. What's the connection? If you're intrigued, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. So Jack, this already feels like a million years ago, but I don't know if you remember when after the shooting at Stoneman Douglas high school in Florida, Betsy DeVos convened a school safety commission. And basically the conclusions that they drew was, was that, you know, the safety issues in schools are as a result of, of black students in particular, you know, being more prone to violence, that it just, it drew on the kind of worst racist arguments straight out of the Manhattan Institute. And I've really noticed as I've been on my extensive self-guided tour through all of these new pushes on the right to privatize education and how often they lean on quote unquote race science. Mm. I'm reading that terrible book, Battle for the American Mind by the Fox News uh, correspondent Pete Hegseth and they love Charles Murray. And, you know, they talk about how, like, what a shame it was that Charles Murray got canceled when, you know, he was right that, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, the achievement gap and the gaps were all caused by, you know, quote unquote, culture. Right. So I feel like that, you know, like that kind of talk was a little bit harder to hear for a while, but boy, is it back now. Yeah. And it reminds me of some of the pushback to Obama era guidance. Uh, coming out of the Department of Education and maybe also the Department of Justice um, about racially disparate school discipline. Um, the pushback being that um, it isn't that 
schools have racialized the process of um, disciplining students. It's that students of color are worse behaved, um, right? That that's what the pushback was. The pushback was you are forcing us to not discipline young people who need to be disciplined. And, and I worry about that. And I, I think the thing that was so ineffective about the Obama administration's approach to that was that it was so bureaucratic, right? Um, that there was this real missed opportunity to educate the public about what was going on. And so it was easy to push back against, right? Here's this bureaucratic guidance coming down saying, right, essentially you've got to hit your quotas here. And that enabled people to push back and say, what about the real world? And I think what's interesting about this story um, is that in the real world, actually the situation is reversed, right? In the real world, it isn't that, oh yeah, the kids of color are much worse behaved and really do need to be disciplined um, at rates that lead to real disparities between how often they are, for instance, suspended versus how often white students are suspended. That if you actually listen to young people, if you listen to their experiences, right, it's hard not to be moved by them. And so I see that, that well-intended Obama administration effort as being really a missed opportunity there. So, Jack, as you were talking, I was imagining you talking in a Mike Petrilli voice. I don't actually know what his voice sounds like, but you sounded, there was a real gadfly element there. <laughs> That's it. End the episode right there. <laughs> well, I can't end the episode there because everybody wants to know what are we going to be talking about in the weeds. That's right. You can't end the episode there because otherwise it would be free. Well, as our regular listeners know, we rely on your support to keep the podcast going, to pay our excellent producer, and to send Jack on fancy European vacations. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, uh, so chip in uh, because my dream destination is Spain next summer. Uh, so every little bit helps. Uh, we accept dollars, euros, and Bitcoin. And my dream destination, of course, is the weeds. That's where we get together after the show ends and we hold forth on some topic that usually I select. And what I've come up with today, Jack, is that it's not a coincidence that the same states that are rushing to ban, uh, to ban abortion are also the, really leading the charge to dismantle their public education systems. And I'm going to explain to you why I think that is. And I think you're, you're going to really appreciate my insights. Yeah, and I think one interesting observation there, which maybe you're about to make, is that I think that the, the numbers show that people aren't really in support of either of those things, even in red states. Um, so there's something really interesting there about that. If this discussion appeals to you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll see a list of the cool extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. Things like a custom reading list and you get to join us in the weeds where insights are aplenty. <laughs> I usually uh, tell people to you know, share uh, the latest episode or their favorite episode or to, you know, tweet about it, tag the show's handle, have you heard pod, go on, give us a rating. But I think I'm going with something different this week. Let's kick it old school and support the show by making a sandwich board that says, I love, have you heard? And then just in case people don't know what it is, you could put in parentheses, it's a podcast. And then walk around your neighborhood 
wearing your pro have you heard sandwich board. What do you think of that, Jennifer? I think that's such a great idea, Jack. And I'm so glad that you've decided to kick it off yourself. I'm looking forward to seeing you wearing said sandwich board in Somerville one of these days. Yeah, yeah. I'm on my way to Davis Square right now. And uh, hopefully I'll be ginning up a few new listeners for us. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>